I'm Melissa Kearns. And I'm Amy Yersted. And we welcome you to the 16th episode of the What Would Alice Paul Do podcast. This show is about demystifying what it means to be a volunteer with the League of Women Voters today. In this episode, we're channeling Alice Paul and the National Women's Party flavor. We're talking about running for office, specifically why you should consider a run. Our activist action alert is this whole segment. We need more women in office. And today with me, we have my very good friend and fellow national board member, Jessica Roloff, who has run for office. So she'll have all kinds of great advice. Welcome, Jessica. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. We're super excited to have you because Amy and I have not run for office yet. Yep, I've only helped with campaigns. And we have to also tell our audience that Jessica's here because Minnesota is experiencing a blizzard. By the time they listen to this episode, I'm sure that hopefully that (laughs) blizzard will be gone and the daffodils will be up. But we saw the pictures today and it looks really, really bad. Yes, I was thinking maybe today the blizzard would pass, but my flight for tomorrow is actually already canceled. So, you know, I don't know how long I'll be staying here yep. in the great state of Virginia. <laughs> yes. Well, I was like, you know what? She's going to earn her keep. She's going to do podcast episodes. <laughs> right. Well, we're just, um, yeah, we're just going to keep you, Jessica. Oh, well, all right. I'll, I'll let my family know. Yeah. And we, I, I already took her shopping, so, and we had ice cream. So I think, she, I don't think she's, a, she's too hard pressed on she's, this one. She's moving in. Yeah, the place is a little small, but the husband has the cot set up, so she's ready to go. <laughs> that's what it really means to be an activist and somebody that's involved. Eventually, you'll be sleeping on a cot. That's hardcore. <laughs> so it reminds me of my first uh, state political convention that I ever attended as a delegate. I actually couldn't really afford a hotel room, and so I begged some other women who were already bunked four to a room if I could sleep on the dirty uh, cheap hotel floor, oh. and that is what I did. But um, all of these women that stayed with me have a lot of respect for me, and they're like, "Yeah, you're pretty hardcore." <laughs> yeah, that's really gross, actually. I'm you, not gonna you, lie. You really want this? I'm like, yes, I am serious. That is hardcore. <laughs> I don't know that I am prepared for that. <laughs> for our D's Not Word segment, we're going to be talking about what you can and what you should do that will help democracy run for office. Local, state, or national, just put your hat in the ring, add your voice, and start a dialogue about the issues you care about. Melissa, did you know that only three women have made it on the on a major political party ticket, mm. and two were vice presidential candidates, and one as a presidential candidate? Yeah, I think I did know that. Uh, Geraldine Ferraro ran um, in 84. I guess we had Sarah Palin in mm-hmm. 08, and then, of course, we had Hillary Clinton run in 2016. For um, for this podcast episode, I've been kind of diving into some of these amazing women who had the courage and were fearless um, and ran. And so some of the things I learned is that um, I learned that the first woman to ever run was Victoria Woodhull in 1872 in the Equal mm. Rights Party. Like I didn't even know that an Equal Rights Party existed. Mm. Um, also that Elizabeth Cady Stanton, so I, I have a children's book about Elizabeth Cady Stanton. So I'm already in love with this woman because she had like at least seven children and her BFF was Susan B. Anthony. And she ran for Congress in 1866 and she ran as an independent. Oh. And I was like, I was kind of blown away by that one. I thought that was super yeah, cool. I didn't know that Cady Stanton ran for office. That's pretty cool. I know. And then she had a bunch of kids too. So I'm like, holy cow, that's some, that's crazy. That's awesome. 
Um, I also learned that the first woman whose name was put onto the nomination for president by a major political party was Margaret Chase Smith of Maine, and that was in 1964 at the Republican Convention in San Francisco. Um, And then similarly, the first woman to run for president as a Democrat was Representative Shirley Chisholm um, of New York of 1972. Yeah, and Uh, it's not enough. We definitely haven't had enough women run. And I know that in, um, if you look at 2016, there's only about just a little over 300 women who've served in Congress. 46 of them were, were senators. Right now we have 105 women in Congress. So it only equals about a little less than 20% of the elected leaders that in Congress right now are women. Which is crazy. I mean, that's crazy. Like less than 20%. Yeah. That's yeah, that's awful. We're fifty percent of the population. <laughs> yeah, or fifty. I think it's like fifty point eight percent. We should have at least fifty point eight percent of women, run. I mean, serving, serving our country. That's that's nuts. Yeah. And then um, here was some really sad news. And for my all my friends in these states, we have some work to do. Delaware, Mississippi, and Vermont. You have never sent a woman to Congress. What? Oh my yeah, goodness. like I know. And I, um, I'm going to be visiting Delaware next month. So I'm going to talk to my sisters there <laughs> yeah. and say, ladies, sign the roll up your sleeves and run for office. Right. we got to put this to an end here. Yeah. Yep. I also learned that 22 states have never had a woman governor, and there are currently only six women who are currently serving as governor. A little over 1,800 seats in the state legislatures, which is about 25%, are held by women. So 25% of state legislatures... Are held by women. That's that's not good. That is not enough. These are the people that you 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 can see regularly, um, and only the quarter of the country are represented by women. Wow. Yeah. So. And this at the city level, it's not much better. So, um, mm-hmm. of the hundred largest cities, only twenty two in the U.S. have women serving as mayor. Uh, only four of those mayors are African American. One is a Latina, and two are Asian Pacific Islander. More women of color. More women. You know, the things that impact our every single day, you know, health care, child care, schools, how much time we work in, in during the day, you know, clean water, clean air. I mean, every single thing that affects us, we aren't having the women represented to really speak for us. I mean, part of the problem is that we, you know, women, there's a lot more expectations on us than other people, you know, than on men. And we have a second shift, which means we work all day, you come home and now you got to work at home. But for those that can, should. And- those who want to need a support from the rest of us to help them. And it's we're lucky that we have Jessica with us because, Jessica, you've ran for office. So what do you think about these numbers? I, I, I see it all the time. And really, the, the first time I ever really paid attention to anything was the first time that somebody actually brought me to my state capitol. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was about in 1996. And I think prior to that, I had some kind of idea that uh, maybe women were on some equal footing and maybe that it was just that there was just so much expertise there that we weren't, I just was surprised um, when we went because uh, every office we stopped in um, was a man. Mm -hmm. And at that time I was working uh, for a battered woman's shelter And some of the responses that I received, I actually left that day uh, with really my rose-colored glasses removed. Mm -hmm. We actually had uh, somebody who even questioned the idea of um, 
a person being arrested, if law enforcement is called and there's obvious signs of uh, physical abuse, uh, they felt that that was not fair at that time to arrest if that person had their name on the mortgage of the house. So I left that day feeling very, uh, actually defeated and somewhat disillusioned, but having had that experience, it made me look at things. Once I got over, licked some of my wounds, uh, it made me look at like who is responsible for a democracy. And it just further emphasized to me that I was responsible Mm -hmm. for whatever this democracy does. Mm -hmm. And so it, it sort of lit a fire under me at that time. But it was a, it was a process. I, I didn't come out in 1996 from college and decide to run for office. <laughs> so <laughs> it took me a lot of years of working. Um, I worked a lot in uh, social services type work, you know, trying to help people because I knew I wanted to make the world a better place. And I guess I saw that as an avenue to do it. But I found myself again and again going to lawmakers asking for what amounted to like a pittance amount of money to do our work and really paying executive directors of these programs um, barely living wage. And then every time it was it was always that we were the first thing on the chopping block in government budgets. And that got me thinking. It still took me some time to actually declare myself for office. Mm -hmm. But really, this entire time, I kept thinking, it's so easy for us to lose everything. And many times, I couldn't even understand how we had lost it. It would go into conference committee and just disappear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's kind of, wow. Like, talk about taking the carpet right out from underneath you and all of the power that's on it. I started to see the power that people hold when they're in office. Mm -hmm. And so I still believe in social services. I still believe in um, helping people. But I have come to believe that what it's really about is building power. And that until women decide to build power, Mm -hmm. we will continually be in a position of uh, begging and asking instead of being equal partners at the table Mm. who have the power to to affect these major decisions Uh, a couple of things that weren't listed uh, when you guys talked about what women especially face is that we tend to be the people who live in poverty we tend to be the minimum wage worker we also tend to be the tipped worker who many times is not even paid minimum wage. We also tend to be the first uh, people who are called on to care for our loved ones when they become chronically ill Mm -hmm. or need help because of aging. We also tend to outlive men. And so if you talk about cutting things like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, Yes, you're talking about both men and women, but you're disproportionately talking about women. And so we need to have an equal voice at the table when these things are being, when these decisions are being made. And that is what all of my life has, uh, the arc of my life (laughs) has been moving towards the conclusion that we have to build power and we have to build serious power and we can't be afraid of it. I think as women, we're constantly taught um, that power is a bad thing. But nobody else seems to have a problem with it. Mm. Nobody else seems to have a problem using it. And so I think there's a reason we're being convinced that we shouldn't be building power. Well, you sound like Alice Paul. (laughs) (laughs) That is Alice Paul being channeled. 
I actually started first. Um, I was I I helped my brother on a campaign, and it was a local campaign. And the whole reason he wanted to run for office is because the person holding the office wouldn't return a call to him. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and so we thought, well, uh, this will at least uh, be one way to get the person to respond. Yeah, they're going to be paying attention now. And that was a very unique campaign because uh, because it was a local race. It was. Um, it was more focused on very local issues. And so a, a very wide assortment of people came to work on my brother's campaign, including some, um, some rather uh, traditional-minded men, let's say. And so I will never forget, we were having a campaign meeting. And um, one of the other people working on this campaign said, well, Jessica, why do we need all this women stuff? Mm-hmm. He said, where's the place for men? And I said, well, that would be everything else. You already have that space. Yeah. And so that is why we need spaces for women. It's because the default is, is men. That is the automatic default. Yeah. So, Jessica, when you decided to run, why did you decide to run? Like, what was your motivation? My motivation in running, um, it really came out of, in 2008, I got really engaged in, in, in politics. Um, and I went from attending my first caucus to actually being elected a delegate to my local county convention. Then I went to state, and then I actually was elected to be a national delegate, which is not a normal path. That, that is not how things happen for most people. Um, but because of this, I received uh, what I call my master's degree <laughs> <laughs> in understanding politics yeah. and how it works. Uh, and so... Uh, really, in 2012, uh, we we had somebody in office uh, in our state house seat who I disagreed with a great deal. Um, I, I noticed things like um, not wanting to support uh, mental health care because of religious beliefs. Mm-hmm. And I felt that that was not an appropriate uh, stand to take for everybody. Yeah. It was many, many things like that. Um, There's a lot of issues. Like, so you didn't run for, like, you weren't trying to achieve a political office and for a job or a career. You wanted to fix things. You wanted to do it because you were, it was issue-based? Yes, yes. It was issue-based because I did not agree with the things that the, the current um, occupant of the seat. What became more complicated is that uh, we actually had a woman who stepped up to run for office. Mm-hmm. But I did not agree with her on several things. Yeah. And so um, I chose to run in a primary um, against another female candidate. And um, I received some criticism for that. However, my point was that uh, if we really want to be taken seriously, then we must be able to withstand things like primaries. We must be seen as a... A, a full candidate with all the challenges that that comes with. Right. Uh, and so so that was a very interesting situation to be running against another woman. Well, and I would think, too, you want to have people running in those primaries because that's a competition of ideas, and that's what's really coming out of it is that the party is presenting, you know, people come through the party as a filter, more or less, and it's a competition of ideas, and then their voters, it's expected that they come and they decide which set of ideas that they are more favorable to. So. Yes, and actually, uh, 
when I decided to to run in this primary, um, part of it for me was about defining what winning was going to look like. Mm-hmm. And so um, and so I felt there was a whole set of ideas that were not being brought to the table. Mm-hmm. And so even though I put I put everything into it and wanted to win, I also knew that there was a value to me even speaking my truth. Right. So winning really isn't everything. Also, it's part of like elevating a bigger message about the issues that are impacting our communities. Yes. At, at that time for me, um, one of the things that really stood out for me um, was that we had a we had a constitutional uh, amendment on the ballot, mm-hmm. which was the marriage amendment. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if you guys know or not, but Minnesota is the first state that turned back a marriage amendment that uh-huh. actually voted no. Oh, no, I did not. Yeah, know I didn't know that. Every, Every other state, it had failed. The challenge to it had failed, and it had passed. Um, and and what I was concerned about, what finally pushed me, even though I would be running against another woman, what finally pushed me was that the candidate would not say anything about it. Oh. And I was thinking of all the LGBT kids in my community mm-hmm. that would then have no candidate no candidate that spoke to them right. or champion them and their rights and their their being like i felt that it would it would it could be it could feel like a complete rejection yeah of who they were as people as humans and so what was so valuable about the experience is that i was able to speak and i still to this day this was in 2012 i have people come up to me in the grocery store and thank me for speaking to their issues. Wow. That's awesome. Wow. And so sometimes it is not the vote count. Yep. Sometimes it is the voice and the platform you get from running. Wow. Also, it was my first race. Mm-hmm. Um, I was running against somebody who had the largest union in our state backing them. And what was interesting is uh, somebody asked me, uh, Jessica, why do you think you can beat the New York Yankees? And my response was, because even the Yankees lose sometimes. <laughs> and you still have to have a game. Right. You still got to have a game. You have to have a game. That's right. And so, really, uh, what was interesting is because even though I lost that primary, then what I did after that is I went straight to work for the Vote No campaign. Wow. And we were the first state to turn back that amendment. Oh, wow. It was all you. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it was all me, but, you know, it felt pretty good. Yeah, I It felt pretty good. So I'm, I imagine that doing all of that campaigning, that you got to meet your neighbors and feel like you were, you got to get to know your community a lot better. Um, what were some of the strategies to get to know some of the issues and the people and um, have a real connection and as, as you were canvassing and campaigning? I think, first of all, I didn't wait until that year to know my community. Okay. I had already gone through my community, uh, I think, five times before that on different campaigns. And so I was actually quite familiar when I got to a door. Mm-hmm. I somewhat, you know, I had been there before um, campaigning on behalf of other people. And what was interesting is when I had campaigned on behalf of other people, occasionally people would say to me, why aren't you running? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Why are you here for a different candidate? 
And, you know, I think as women, that's often a question we need to ask ourselves is we do tend to go out and show up for other people, but sometimes we're afraid to be the person who's showing up for themselves. Mm. And so, so first of all, my advice would be do not wait until you decide to run for office to get to know your community. Yeah, I think that's an excellent, excellent advice. Yeah, uh, because by that time, you know, I, I had some idea of, of uh, where people stood, um, what was what was important to people, um, what keeps them awake at night, mm-hmm. what what brings them great joy in their life. I mean, th- this this is the the heart of why you should want to be in public office, is because you you really care about your community. Yeah. That's the right reason to run. Um, Everything else, uh, the pay is not good. Um, uh, even campaign work. Uh, what is really funny the first time people come in to do campaign work is they think that it's going to be like the West Wing where people are laughing and there's this witty banter as you walk down the hallway. And what it really is is about hours and hours of knocking on people's doors and really bad food for <laughs> a certain period of time in your life. <laughs> Data entry. <laughs> uh, but that's what it takes. Uh, that is what a campaign is. And so uh, my advice would be know your community. Um, show up at community meetings. Find out what's bringing people out. Uh, I, met, I met the mayor of Houston one time, um, Anissa Parker, I think that was her name. And she said to me, um, Jessica, nobody talks to the mayor because everything's going great. Because they got up that morning and the water came on and it worked the way it's supposed to. And the garbage was picked up on time. And the street they drove on was awesome. That is not why people contact you. And so going to public meetings and listening to people at public meetings, um, your city council, your county board, all of those things will tell you where people's concerns lie. When you went to go and run for office... How did you find out the information that you needed to go and actually run? So like the process stuff. Where did you go and what did you do? Um, First of all, you need a team. Uh, So it really helps to talk to somebody who has run before. Uh, Second of all, almost every state has an office that is devoted to running elections and campaign finance. Mm -hmm. And those are the people you want to talk to them early and you want to talk to them often. Uh, and you you have to put a team around you. You simply cannot run an entire campaign by yourself. You you cannot be afraid to invite people in. Um, I was recently called out for this uh, because somebody pointed out that I'm sometimes hesitant to ask lower income people to put in money. And this person said to me, you are the only person who's afraid of that. Mm-hmm. Big corporations, they're not afraid. Ah. Um, nobody else on the planet nobody's afraid to try to sell them something nobody else is afraid to ask them for money and here you are trying to commit to them and trying to bring about justice and you're afraid to ask them for money for money because you know how much it means to them yes and and so that really put me on a, a that put me on a deeper level even of thinking because if you want to run for office you have got to get over any hesitation you have of asking people to support you vote for you or to support you with money and time because if you don't believe in it enough to make that ask 
then why should they believe that you can handle that office and that you're going to be strong enough to ask on their behalf in any kind of public forum? Mm. And so it it is about getting yourself centered and becoming very clear and confident that you have something of quality to offer and also respecting the other person to either uh, do it or not. They get to make a decision. And by saying no for them, you are really taking their power. On the same line of money, but kind of different, uh, we need to raise money because we hear all the time that in order for you to run a campaign, it's going to take some money. So maybe at the local level, it might take only maybe a thousand. But if you're going to go a state race, it could take tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands. Um, so what are some of like the basic things that if someone wanted to run for office, what do they need to do to start the start fundraising? Well, first of all, I think before you start fundraising, you want to look at uh, what's a what's your baseline needs. So what approximately is a campaign going to cost? Okay, how do you find that out? You can find that out most of the time, but um, there's usually a way in your state to look up and find out how much the last campaign spent. Okay. That, that is something to consider. Um, and of course, things do change over time, so you might have to adjust it somewhat. Right. Or you look at whether or not it was highly, highly contested last time. Um, and if it wasn't contested, but yours is going to be more highly contested, you're probably going to have to up that budget. Mm. Um, but it's things like that. It's, it's really devising some kind of a plan, like what kind of media buys are you going to want to do? Um, and, and then um, building out your fundraising plan from that. Okay. And if it's local, I mean, if it's like a school board, you probably won't need a media buy, but you might need a lot of flyers and postcards and yard signs and you know, maybe a website and things like that. But if it's like a state office or even higher, you know, you're going to need. Yeah, it really depends on your community. Um, okay. Like the community I I um, live in, the newspaper is still a big deal. Okay. You're going to need to buy an ad in the newspaper, probably more than one. Mm-hmm. Um, other things to consider is that you, you want to decide sooner rather than later. Um, some campaigns will strategically go in and buy every radio spot that is, you know, they'll buy it six months in advance. And so even if you raise the money, you won't be able to buy because there's nothing left. Wow. I didn't even think of that. Holy cow. Yeah. So you want to, you really do. It is strategic. Mm -hmm. Um, You need a, you need a plan and then you need people who can help you execute the plan. Um, and as we've talked about on the Alice Paul podcast, my big issue is money and politics. So I would imagine that you would want to know all the laws about campaign finance and when you're supposed to put file in your reports and all that. So where would you normally find that information? Most places it resides with the Secretary of State. Okay. They can really help you. Occasionally, if it's a local race, you go to your county and you'll have an auditor who can help you walk walk you through that process and nowadays it's really convenient because you can google a lot of things yeah. <laughs> i know I've, i figured locally when i was looking um it looked like a lot of you could find a lot of this information if you just walk into the city clerk's office and they could probably give you a lot and you know pass on a bunch of links but it also goes about probably to you want to have um, on your team a treasurer that you can really trust that's going to be able to keep the month, the numbers and the, you know, the filing reports and whatnot up to date and all that. Yes. You want the, the person, the person who you make your treasurer has to be a person who's uh, highly organized and that you trust completely. Yeah. Um, so I kind of joke with my brother, we're like the Kennedys. So <laughs> he was my treasurer. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good idea. 
could also yell at him and not feel so bad. Yeah. <laughs> Your history. Um, and I would say, you know, it's it's it, it's fairly easy to make small mistakes. I mean, it really is. Mm. Um, but if you're in communication with the office that regulates it, they usually can tell you how to how how to modify or rectify. You know, maybe you you, you can make something like a twenty dollar mistake. You can, um, the, in some states, there's rules about how many days you have to cash a check after you receive it. Oh, wow. And so you really want somebody that's detail-orientated, uh, that, that understands the importance, and that aligns with your values. Mm. Um, like, as with taxes, um, some people go further out on the risk end, and some people are very, very, very honest. And so you want to make sure your treasurer is aligned with your compass around that. Okay. I would want somebody very honest. Yes. <laughs> there is no risk taking. Yes. And and people will try um people will try to give you donations that you they may not know that they're not legal. Oh, okay. So, for example, in my state, a business can't contribute. Really? Yes. A business can't contribute. So it, right. So it needs to be a personal account. It needs to be a personal account. You yeah. know, many people that own a small business, right. they might have two checkbooks and they might be used to writing things um from either checkbook. Yeah, yeah. Well, these are one of the things that I, I see people make that mistake. They accidentally take a check from a business. Well, wow. then it has to be returned. So um, it's it's even small things like that, making sure that the person who's writing you the check is writing it from the correct account. I, I just have to say, I got to take a moment because I am impressed. I mean, I know that they could probably like mess with these, this rule, but in Virginia, you can get as much money as much money as you want from a person or business. So our monopoly utility company can write you a $100,000 check and you can accept it. And then even worse, in Virginia, you can spend it on yourself if you want to spend it on yourself. Can you do that in Minnesota? If like if some rich person wanted to give you a $100,000 check, can you spend that on yourself? I do not believe so. Yeah. Yeah, Virginia's messed up. When you know, I, I didn't, nobody wrote me $100,000. <laughs> <so. laughs> Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Maybe, Not well, yet. you might actually have restrictions too, so. Yes, and I do want to, um, I don't want to paint it as more perfect than it is because that is just for direct campaign donations. Okay. And so these outside packs that mm-hmm. run ads that you're not coordinating with, um, for our House of Representatives, for our small Minnesota district, two campaign cycles ago, for a, a job that pays $32,000, yeah. where you're representing, um, you're representing approximately 50,000 people, um, there was over a million dollars spent. Wow. That was not even the campaign. That was an outside yes. campaign. Yes. Like pack or super pack. Yes. We could we, we could have, I think we may have um, eliminated a small forest with the amount of campaign literature that my district was um, inundated with. Money and politics, I tell you what, it is like one of the, the root of all evil in our country, I think. <laughs> it's so bad. Yeah, so Minnesota has very strict campaign finance laws um, that are very well enforced. Um, however, uh, they aren't allowed to regulate this outside PAC money. Yeah. Um, and oftentimes, um, one of the big things that I taught people during my um, campaign was how to read these flyers. Mm. And so paid for by, um, a lot of these groups are just traced back to a post office box. And then if you, you can actually find out who 
how many organizations are listed for that particular post office box. And you often might have five organizations. Whoa. And so they're, they're inundating people with all of these. Um, I, I've joked with other people that have run for office. It's like apple, pa- apple pie for everyone. Paid for by apple pie for everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they sound really nice. Um, but when you trace them back, they often have several, several different connections to groups that you may or may not support. So what are some ways that when you're running, how do you market yourself? Well, it's a very important that you are publicly available. Okay. And so you spend a lot of time at community events. I mean, any, any place you can go, mm-hmm. you show up and you talk with people. Um, that is the single most effective uh, person-to-person contact. Absolutely uh, outweighs anything else you can do. Okay. Yeah. Someone, um, I was at a league, uh, training one day, totally unrelated. And the woman came up and she said, Amy, if you ever decided to run for office, let me give you a piece of advice. And I wasn't asking for the advice, but I think it was some very valuable advice. And she says, when you're running for office, if there is three events in one night, you go to all three of them. It doesn't matter that you're only there for 15 minutes per event. You got to show up at all three events. And so try it just like what you're saying. Be accessible. You've got to show up to everybody's community event uh, because everybody wants to see you and you want everybody to meet you and get to know you. Yes. And I even got to the point where um, if it was a small town I was in and there was two gas stations, I would alternate which gas station I bought my gas from. Oh, that's a good idea. (laughs) Because it is about whether or not you're present. Um, And small things can be misinterpreted. And so you have to be cognizant that everything, especially in today's climate, Mm -hmm. is interpreted as some type of political act. Can you give an example? I certainly can. (laughs) (laughs) So let's say it's your third event of the day, and you just simply can't eat anymore. Oh, yeah. And so you pass on the uh, pork sandwich when they ask you, and then suddenly there's um, some speculation as to whether you're against pork producers. I, <laughs> like, I'm just full, right? Yes. So you really, um, it, it really does become that every act you engage in um, has the potential to be interpreted in some political context. Mm-hmm. And so showing up, talking with people, um, making your ideas known, um, is that becomes so, so important. Yeah. You also have to get clear on what, what your top three priorities are. People really can't absorb much more than three things on a flyer or three things in a speech. Where I've seen other candidates get confused is where uh, they sort of are doing the kitchen sink speech um, where the, it doesn't seem to have focus. Mm. And if you don't have any focus, it's hard for people to connect with you and feel like you're being authentic. Okay, I think that's a really big and important thing, especially nowadays with so much media, is to be authentic. Because I think we all see stuff on television or in the paper or on social media, and we just think that it's like scripted and there's consultants behind it. So I think it's really important probably to be authentic and be the you that you, you know, that everybody knows if you've been, if you've been knocking on the doors and people in your community know you, then be real. Right. And I, I would say that it's, it's not about, um, 
because you you want to have a plan. Mm-hmm. I mean, a script is not bad, right? But it depends on if the script is written about something that you actually believe in and that you've actually lived and that you actually support. Yeah, that is where I think it it can ring um, hollow for people. Mm-hmm. Is if it is simply a script that was created by somebody because they think that's what will sell, right? Rather than a script that is authentic to what you as the candidate believe and support. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the the best candidates though that I have seen are, are very good at listening. Mm. And so we tend to think it's all about uh, what we say. But sometimes if you have an interaction with somebody, um, people are so rarely listened to anymore that that might be stronger in their memory that you actually listen to them tell you about what's deep in their life and what they're facing and what they could use your help with. I also, can we get real for a minute about being a female candidate? Yeah, of course. This is Alice Paul podcast. Please do. (laughs) So one of the things I encountered when I went in to open my campaign fund at a bank, because you have, that's one of the things you have to do. You go in and you open a campaign fund. Uh, The bank was hesitant to let me open a campaign fund. Wait, what? And so they asked me extra questions. And because I had worked on other campaigns, I knew these same questions hadn't been asked of a male candidate. And so I actually just asked them why they were asking me these extra questions. And so you you will see that that things, uh, even today, that it's not quite a a level uh, playing field. Yeah, you don't hear about that stuff. You hear about, I mean, there's whole documentaries about women in politics where like, you know, they look at our clothing or how we look or age or, you know, can she really be a good mom sort of thing. But the things that are covert, you don't hear about those things so much. What other kind of experiences have you had that were creepy like that? Well, it's interesting how my footwear was suddenly um, interpreted as some kind of a political statement. Um, if I went, I, I went to an event once, I was wearing high heels, and somebody said, uh, finally a candidate who's not afraid to dress like a woman. Oh, my gosh. Mm. And then I wore flats to another event, and somebody came up and said, finally a woman who knows that you can be strong with sensible footwear. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Can't win. <laughs> no. And so I, I think being a woman candidate um, – One of the things is you you really have to learn how to be gracious, um, to be clear and firm about things. But also you cannot uh, you will not survive the campaign season if every comment like that uh, drives you to a place of uh, being furious. You have to you have to hear past that comment, because what that person what that comment is really about is that person projecting on you what their values are. Mm -hmm. And so if you can take it as that and not take it personally, you'll do much better. You'll come out better. Well, I don't know about you, but I think I would be frustrated. (laughs) If you think about the greater good, if you can get into office, how much more you could change. That is worthwhile, especially when they're cutting off services and you see your neighbors are struggling. And I think every person who runs for office goes through this to some degree, but you need to have a trusted person who will be honest with you Mm. And you need to sit down and you need to have a real, real, real conversation. And they need to ask you tough questions that you are going to be asked. Uh, I, I ran for office. Um, I went through a divorce and, you know, I, I, I wanted to be um, 
I thought it would be uh, good form if I waited at least four weeks to pass before I filed for office. So, <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> approximately, you know, a few a few weeks after my divorce was final, I um, I declared that I, I wanted to run for office. And so I had a, a, a longtime um, friend sit down and just um, ask me really tough questions. And one of the questions they asked is um, basically was around my divorce and why I was why I had divorced and uh, because I needed practice answering those very personal questions. And it's not that you owe somebody an explanation, but it is deciding what and how you are going to speak on that issue. Mm. So you're already just kind of prepared and kind of already set the ground. Your brain's already thinking and. Yes. You don't, you're not like completely caught off guard when this happens and then you're stumbling over yourself. Yes. And also it just makes you, it puts you in a better, uh, a better place mentally, psychologically, um, because you're, you're prepared that somebody will probably ask this, especially if you're, the more power you gain and the more successful you are, mm. the more uh, people will go to that level in a campaign. Mm. So I would argue that if nobody's bringing up, um, things that you would consider would be sort of uh, dirty things in a campaign. If nobody's bringing those up, it's because they don't see you as a threat. Okay. Those things start to come up once you start building power. And so if you can start looking at it through that lens, that, wow, people are taking me seriously. That's why the knives are coming out. It'll actually start to excite you. Mm-hmm. So you should actually, okay, so if they're being total jerks, you'd be like, yes, <laughs> exactly. <I'm getting> <laughs> exactly. I'm winning this game. <laughs> That is exactly it. That is exactly it. Oh, that sounds super scary. <laughs> <laughs> you also, the, the most important thing you have in a campaign is your time. And so you will need somebody on your team who can help you manage your time. Okay. Um, and that includes, sometimes people will just talk, you, you might have somebody who um, wants to talk to you for three or four hours mm. um, about what's important to them. And you really, if you're going to reach you know, 30,000 voters, that is simply more time than you have. So that's where it's really great to have a volunteer that can maybe go to coffee with that person and hear them all the way out and give you the highlights. Okay. Yeah, I just um, I just listened to this uh, podcast, Making Obama, which is out of Chicago, and the campaign manager had to pull Barack from, you know, from the doors on his first campaign because he kept wanting to talk to everybody and she was like nope we got to keep going Mm -hmm. it's good to have that volunteer with you that is the absolute hardest thing um that that was for me that was the hardest thing Mm -hmm. because people will invite you in Mm -hmm. it's really interesting it i actually found um going door to door um sort of restored my faith in humanity Mm -hmm. um because most people even if they don't agree with you maybe they don't agree with you politically uh, most people are fairly gracious and are fairly welcoming. Um, you will get people who slam the door in your face, but that honestly is a rarity. Mm. I think we make that much bigger than what it actually is, and it makes people afraid to get involved, and it makes people afraid mm-hmm. to go out and call people and slam the door, or, you know, or go and knock on people's doors. Mm-hmm. When the truth, the truth is actually that most people. If they don't want to talk to you, they simply won't answer. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And most people are gracious when they do answer the door. 
So how do you get people to actually go to the door? Like if you you can't go because you can't go to every single door, how do you mobilize voters? You mobilize voters by connecting with them, I believe, on, on something that's very important to them. Okay. And so it's no longer that they're going to... They should not be going to the polls for you. Mm-hmm. They should be going to the polls for you because it's in their self-interest. Okay. So about back to the issue. Yes. Okay. Back to what what they see you being able to bring to the table. If people go to the polls uh, or if you make your case that you need them to go to the polls and you're like apologetic about it and it sounds like you're asking them to do you a favor, that is not a position of power. Yeah. So why would they believe you're going to be able to have enough power to do anything on their behalf? Mm. You have to, I think especially as women, we have to stop apologizing and we have to stop making it sound like we're asking people for a favor. Mm. This is not a favor. This is an opportunity for them to get on board with something that could generate real change and real power. And if you sell it as anything other than that, then I think your chance of building real power and winning goes down precipitously. So I guess I imagine that also mobilizing your volunteer corps is going to be something similar. They believe that you are the power to help get them the solutions that they all need. Yes, and it's not, I don't want to make it sound transactional. It's not like you elect me and I will do A. No, you're championing. You're their champion. Yes. It is about, do you want somebody who's serious about hearing what you need and about meeting the needs of this community and is serious about entering a really powerful environment? Because these are rooms of power. This is where the decisions are made. And so you need somebody who is dead clear about what they are intending to do when they hold office on your behalf. Otherwise, when things get tough, people fall away. So it's raining. I don't want to go door to door. You need people that are so convinced that that this is in all of your self-interest and your community's self-interest. They're, they're going to be calling you an hour before the door knock. <laughs> They're gonna be. They're gonna be start motivating you, which I imagine you're gonna need because you're gonna be doing a lot of fundraising. You're gonna be doing a lot of voter mobilization. So every now and then you're gonna need that big kick in the pants. And what's really what's really interesting as a person that runs for office is you will go to these big events and it's loud and you're at the microphone and it's busy, busy, chaotic. But at the end of the day. Like, you'll still find yourself by yourself in the frozen food aisle at the grocery store. Like every other person. <laughs> like every other person. And it, it helps to know that you have a team around you mm-hmm. in those moments. And you have to, you really, even though I made my, my, um, my brother was my, can, was my treasurer, mm-hmm. I made clear that his wife, was not involved because she's also my best friend because I needed somebody who could give me a five minute mental break from being the candidate. And so I needed, you need that in your personal life. You need some space. You need people who still know you as Jessica and just Jessica. And you need to be able to have that because you'll come out, you'll come, you'll come out stronger when you are in public if you're taking care of yourself in private. So Jessica, you know, we hear a lot as um, women that, you know, we're, we aren't qualified um, to run for office. And I know sometimes um, it's hard for us to think that we should go ahead and run for office. What do you think about that? I think the best cure for that is to go visit your lawmakers in, the, in their rooms of power 
and that will that will help you to realize that they are just people <laughs> and that they did not wait until they had expertise in every possible situation and if you are waiting for somebody else to come along and to make decisions that uh, that you think need to be made and changes that need to be made nobody's coming mm-hmm. it is you there's no Maytag repairman. There's no knight on a horse. You got to be it. You got to be it. You got to be We're it. We're enough. We are enough. Yes. Yes. I'm telling you, go visit these lawmakers in their offices. Yeah, I actually could speak. I, that's to, that is so <laughs> true. Like, some of these people I have seen, they are just like us. Like, and we, actually, we are way smarter than them. <laughs> and we have way more life experience. We've done way more stuff. We know more people. Damn it, we're good enough. <laughs> we're good enough. And often we have balanced yeah. many more things yeah. I know, right? at one time. That's right. Which perfectly prepares us to be in office because you have to balance many competing interests at one time. I mean, what better definition of the job is there? <laughs> right. No. I mean, we're, we are perfectly suited. Melissa, it's time for you to run. Yeah, well, time for you to run, Amy. <laughs> The other thing you can do is support other women. Yeah. Support other women. I, uh, I actually received an apology a couple of years ago because I was trying to encourage women to run for my local city uh, council. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I had been talking to women and talking to women about doing this. And one of them finally came to me and she said, I am so sorry. She said, I I just assumed that things could run on their own. And you kept telling me, no, the wheels are falling off. (laughs) If we don't take care of our local government, things can actually get pretty bad. And she decided to run and she won. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. And my city council now, it it almost has, um, it, it is almost achieved gender parity. Wow. That's a big deal. That's and a big deal. that is because women started showing up, mm-hmm. speaking out, and asking questions, mm-hmm. and supporting each other. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. And that is a big deal. It is a completely different council now. It functions completely differently. Mm-hmm. And that is because there's a variety of voices in the room. So, Jessica, i got to say thank you so much for coming on Alice Paul, What Would Alice Paul Do podcast. Um, this was fantastic. I want to make sure that our listeners also know that there are many books out nowadays because of President Trump, Donald Trump running. I think it has inspired a lot of women to stand up and represent and speak to the issues and make their communities better, make our whole country better. And there's, there's one book that had caught my eye at a awesome bookstore. This book that I hold, I'm holding in my hands right now is called Don't Just March, Run for Something, A Real Talk Guide to Fixing the System Yourself. And it's by Amanda Lippman, co-founder of Run for Something. And this book I have is fantastic. I feel like if you ever want to run for office, this is probably the book that you need to have in the bathroom, on the coffee table, on your nightstand, and on the kitchen table because it's got all the directions. So if you listen to everything that Jessica just talked about and have this book with all the little bunny ears throughout it, I think that you are going to do great. Thanks. This was great. This is Melissa Currents. And this is Amy Erston. We ask, what would Alice Paul do? But it's more important what you're going to do. The numbers suck. 
Run for office or bust your tail and help someone else run. Donate to a PAC that supports women, especially one that supports women of color. It's time to infuse our leadership with the power of women and women voices. Until next time. Alice Paul, like you were fearless. <laughs> there's, a Pink, there's a Pink Floyd song called Fearless. Mm. And uh, somebody told me I should download it on my phone. So I, I did. And now I listen to that probably once a day. Nice. To remind myself. Oh, that's awesome. I love that. We should add that to the yeah. podcast. <laughs>